This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all, we have a fantastic podcast for y'all this month. This is really cool because we're going to start to address some of the impending topics in orthopedic surgery and in medicine as a whole, specifically the whole thought of consolidation. Now, some of y'all may be going, all right, this is cool. I've always wanted to learn more about this. Where is this going? And some of y'all may be thinking, I have no idea what consolidation is, so this should be interesting. But before we get into our interview on the topic... I want to make sure that listeners saw last month's advocacy update on the implementation of those surprise medical billing regulations that took effect on January 1st. As you'll recall from our December episode, we have and continue to push for implementation that aligns with congressional intent. So we joined in filing an amicus brief supporting a lawsuit against the federal government and are warning that the regulations as written will greatly diminish patient access to care. Y'all, this is a big deal. We don't take lawsuits lightly, nor do we sue the federal government lightly. But this is very important to our ability to care for our patients in the appropriate manner that we were trained. The AOS remains committed to protecting patients from the heavy hand of insurers and guaranteeing that the imbalance of power in good faith negotiations over payment disputes is not further exacerbated. So we will continue to follow the issue and provide updates to our membership on the lawsuit. Now, turning back to the issue of practice consolidation, we have a fantastic guest that our friend, Dr. Jim Fickey, who many of y'all know, has referred over to us. This is Dr. Brian Miller. Dr. Miller is a hospitalist who works at Johns Hopkins along with Dr. Fickey, but he didn't just stop there. He's also a health policy analyst and a health policy researcher at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, because after he got his MD, he also went around and picked up his MBA and his MPH. As we used to say down south, he's got more degrees than a thermometer, but he is the right guy to talk to us in terms of this, and we're going to talk about an overview of consolidation. So, Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. I guess it's sort of the alphabet soup, uh, overeducated and underemployed, but happy to be part of that crowd. I get to play with interesting topics here in D.C. Consolidation and competition policy is one of them. I was the only licensed physician who worked at the Federal Trade Commission, which is one of two antitrust agencies or competition authorities that oversee markets and mergers in the U.S. Consolidation could be largely thought of as a decrease in the number of market participants in a geographic area, in a particular service market. There are various economic measures. Rule of thumb example would be if you had compared two markets, one which had 10 orthopedic surgery practices within a 30-minute drive of each other versus two orthopedic surgery practices within a 30-minute drive of each other, the latter market would be considered more consolidated compared to the former. So when you're talking specifically about consolidation, you're moving away from more variety, more choice, perhaps, into a more confined and more specific space of less people in the overall market. Is that an overall good way to define consolidation, or would you define it differently from that? I would say you're going to fewer market participants. So if you think about it, and if we look at a lot of the research out there, 
90% of metropolitan statistical areas in the U.S. are concentrated for hospital markets, for example. And this is the product of something like 1,412 hospital mergers that occurred between 1998 and 2015. And we've also seen a similar trend, actually, in outpatient practice consolidation amongst primary care and specialty care, too. In the private practice world, which is where I've spent the majority of my career, we would see hospitals acquire private practices and other physician groups. And of course, that put pressure on those of us who were not acquired to see or do things differently than we might have before. When did you think you started seeing hospitals acquiring private practices and other groups? And was there anything that instigated this behavior? Why do you think this even started? It's a good question. There have been waves of physician practice acquisitions. Historically, it was primary care and some outpatient subspecialties back in the 80s. And then they tried to create these massive chains and control referral networks. And they had IPOs. And a lot of these companies were financial roll-ups as opposed to improving clinical operations. And the hospitals sold off those practices. Then, unfortunately, MySpace healthcare policy invaded and made things a bit worse. There were a couple things that happened. One is We passed a series of laws in the 80s and 90s and then early 2000s known as Stark Law, which prohibited physician self-referral in the Medicare and Medicaid programs for a variety of services, specifically designated health services. However, corporations didn't face those same self-restrictions. So through law, we made a choice to replace competition with a prohibition for one market participant. The best example is... If you're in private practice as an orthopedic surgeon and you have a Medicare patient and you want to open a physical therapy clinic next door, you can't refer that Medicare patient to that physical therapy clinic next door. That's statutorily illegal. However, if you work for a corporate health system, you absolutely can do that. And in fact, many corporate health systems require physicians to do just that. Yeah. Consolidation obviously means different things to different people, whether it's hospitals gobbling up your competition and putting you in a different place, private equity acquisition. There's many different types of consolidation. Can you explain some of the different types and why do you think the hospitals and the physician groups actually engage in this? That's a good question. There are lots of different types. There's traditional sort of horizontal integration where one physician practice buys another physician practice. That's for potentially for increasing market power, which is probably why a lot of private equity firms are rolling up outpatient orthopedic surgery practices to increase their bargaining power with health plans. The other type is to offer integrated care delivery, in which case, if you're a hospital, you may be buying a physician's practice and an ambulatory surgery center and a physical therapy chain in order to sort of offer one-stop shopping for patients. So those are the operational or financial motivations There are also, of course, a couple of policy issues that are sometimes more relevant for other specialties, such as 340B. 340B, can you explain that a little more? So that is a drug pricing program that's originally designed to provide access to basically under-resourced healthcare organizations caring for uninsured patients or high percentage of Medicaid patients to give them access to low-cost drugs. And over the last 20 or 30 years, that definition has widened through rulemaking and also acts of Congress, such that most nonprofit health systems qualify for 340B drugs and then deliver those drugs to patients who maybe have commercial insurance 
and pocket the difference. So that's a pretty strong motivation to go out and buy up just about everything in sight. The other issue, of course, is the lack of payment site neutrality. So if you see a patient in a clinic, you bill for a new patient visit, you bill on the Medicare physician fee schedule. If you become, or historically, if you became a hospital outpatient department, you'd bill under the OPPS or the outpatient prospective payment system. And then your Part B would become something called a facility fee. So the hospital could go out and buy your practice and immediately bill more for the same service without doing anything differently. Now, Congress has attempted to address this as CMS, but it still drove a lot of consolidation over the last 20 years. So that's interesting. You think that a lot of the site-of-service kind of differentials in payment actually drove a fair amount of consolidation? Absolutely. And there's a lot of healthcare services research that shows that is the case. You know, the pandemic has affected everything, right? It affects supply chain, it affects chips, it affects housing market, it affects everything. How has the pandemic affected consolidation? Outside of emptying out the stores of my local CVS, it has had a massive effect on the healthcare delivery system. And it basically highlighted, I would say, the ills of monopoly. When you have a monopolistic system, you lose something that's hard to measure. We know that monopoly has, or consolidation, results in higher costs and lower quality. What's often not discussed is sort of the loss of innovation and flexibility. So the healthcare delivery industry has had 20 years of flat labor productivity growth, which is pretty abysmal, actually, if you think about it. So it means 20 years ago, the physician was just as productive as they are today. And that's atypical for basically all sectors of the economy. You add a pandemic on top of that, massive stress on the system. It just cracks because we don't have that flexibility to respond. We don't have that extra capacity. We are unable to pivot. So in the private sector, when you look at the patients that are affected, overall, do you think consolidation is good for them, is not so good for them, or something in between? I think it's bad. And largely because, as I said, there's a lot of economic evidence and a lot of healthcare services research that shows that consolidation results in higher costs and lower quality. And frankly, who does that hurt the most? It hurts the poor, the elderly, and the disabled, because those are the people who have the fewest resources and the fewest choices. People who are middle class, it still hurts them. We know that one out of five Americans have trouble paying for health care. So it hits a large swath of the population. But if you're 85 years old and you're on Medicare and you have Medicaid and you have SSDI and your family income is $20,000 a year and you face a monopolistic health system and you don't have another choice about where to go to get your care and see your three or four different specialists, you're up, up the creek without a paddle. Let's flip over to the role of the federal government. So we know the federal government is pushing toward value-based health care. How will consolidation affect that? I think consolidation is going to make it harder. And traditionally, I view value-based health care as a risk-adjusted capitated insurance market, which then has flexibility in how they contract with varying physicians, other providers, hospitals, clinics, ambulatory surgery centers, as opposed to an ossified fee-for-service system. In that value-based healthcare setting or that risk-adjusted capitated market, if you're a health plan and you face a consolidated marketplace, or worse yet, a monopolist, you are unable to 
engage in that contracting because you have no choice. You have to accept the health system in your network. You don't have a choice between providers. You can't say, oh, health system A, health system B. If health system A, if you don't do this, I'm going to go health system B and do this type of contract with risk corridor. If you only have health system A, you can't do that. Good point. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about the Stark laws and how they've influenced their progression toward consolidation, but let's talk about that specifically within the context of physician-owned hospitals, because as you know, there's certain limitations on opening a physician-owned hospital and then expanding it. Fortunately, there were some caveats given during the pandemic on this, but how do you think Stark laws have and the limitations that they place on physician-owned hospitals, have they driven consolidation perhaps? Absolutely, because Stark laws prohibit physicians from competing in the market for integrated care delivery, which benefits patients, right? One, we want people who actually work at the bedside of patients to design care processes for patients. You can't do that if you can't own and operate your own business. You can as an employee, but you can't as an owner operator. Physician-owned hospitals represent a particularly interesting case. So originally, Stark law had a series of prohibitions on physician ownership. But despite this, there remained something called the whole hospital exception, which allowed physicians to own ownership in an entire facility and still engage in self-referral. The hospital industry understandably did not like this because competition, well, is competition, right? You can win or you can lose or you have to invest more in your facilities. There was a lot of research that showed that when physician-owned hospitals opened in an area, the nurse staffing ratio changed at competitor hospitals because they had to hire more nurses to compete with the physician-owned hospital. So in physician-owned hospital market, was three markets, really, two big markets. First is general acute care hospitals or community hospitals, ER, ORs, medicine wards, ICUs. And then the other market was specialty hospitals. And that was three markets, cardiac specialty, orthopedic surgical specialty hospitals, which were functionally like ambulatory surgery center plus some inpatient capability as needed. And then, of course, general surgical specialty hospitals. The hospital industry claimed that specialty hospitals cherry-picked patients and functionally were overpaid by Medicare. CMS actually addressed this payment issue and added an acuity adjustment to DRGs. Despite this, though, as part of the passing of the Affordable Care Act, the hospital industry got a ban not just on physician-owned specialty hospitals, but physician-owned community hospitals too, as part of their exchange for supporting the Affordable Care Act. What this means functionally for all of us is that the normal sort of lever, the competitive force that you have, where the physician tries to improve operations, gets together with some of their colleagues, goes and opens a new facility, or even better yet, as in the case of 40 or 50 physician-owned hospitals, does a joint venture with another health system to open a physician-owned hospital, can't do that anymore. And if you own a physician-owned hospital, you can't grow. It's illegal. And it's illegal to bill Medicare for it. Your counterpoint is you can just subside on commercial insurance and you're going to be fine. And the market evidence actually shows that's not true. After this ban on physician-owned hospitals participating in Medicare passed in 2010, several physician-owned hospitals opened in Texas. They all went bankrupt within five years, which suggests that Medicare is necessary for a hospital to remain a going concern. Very interesting. So the counterpoint that we would often hear out there is that 
physician-owned hospitals, specifically orthopedics. Let's pick that one. Tend to cherry pick and then lemon drop the favorable patients on the community hospital, which only adds to their financial burden. How would that impact with consolidation if the limitations against physician-owned hospitals were lifted? I think it's worth mentioning my research team looked at 30 years of cost and quality evidence at physician-owned hospitals. We didn't find any clear evidence that physician-owned hospitals were cherry-picking healthy or unhealthy patients. If this ban on physician-owned hospitals participating in Medicare were lifted, you could imagine a vibrant hospital marketplace would emerge in many areas where physicians who are dissatisfied or even satisfied but think they can do a better job go out and open up new facilities. And that's for the benefit of patients. That's fantastic. I'm glad that y'all did that research. With my former group, we were in a very large practice and we were always looking at expanding our basis. And we had many physician groups come to us to try to become part of us. But our big concern was always the fear of being sued in antitrust. It's a real fear when you're sitting there and you're thinking about the amount of legal bills that you might be paying. It's interesting your point on this because our concern always was that the FTC is not real clear as to what the rule is. What role does the FTC play in determining if mergers are appropriate or even legal? So there are two antitrust agencies in the U.S. One is the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, which has civil and criminal enforcement authority. So they can send you to jail. They are a little scarier. And they traditionally do insurance mergers. And then there's the Federal Trade Commission, which does hospital and ambulatory practice mergers, and a few types of anti-competitive conduct, though, by hospitals and physician practices have to go to DOJ for specific reasons. But the FTC has civil enforcement authorities, so they're not going to send you to jail. That does not mean that they are not a tough audience. So the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act defines the financial thresholds above which you have to file a pre-merger notification with the FTC which then examines the transaction and may decide to seek more information from you to determine if the merger is anti-competitive or, as they would say, illegal. And then there's, of course, the chance that they challenge that transaction. I would say the majority of transactions, at least for ones that require pre-merger notification, they don't challenge, but they challenge selectively transactions that they think are particularly egregious or ones that will set a good precedent in case law or make a specific example of a behavior that they think should not be part of the marketplace. All right, let me summarize real quick, see if you agree with this. So it's in the best interest of the federal government for them to have a certain degree of competition in the marketplace to increase value, increase quality of care, increase value for the healthcare dollar. On the other hand, some of the work of the federal government, specifically the Stark Law, can accidentally or unintentionally impose perhaps consolidation across the marketplace going against that. Is that a fair statement? That's right. And so I mentioned the 1,412 mergers from 1998 to uh, 2015, of which there were 561 from 2010 to 2015. (laughs) And you you think of the poor staff at the FTC, they're already working 12 hours a day. Now you're going to make them work 16 hours a day and take away their weekends for a civil service salary. We're going to burn the poor folks out. And it doesn't make much sense for the government to put its thumb on the scale in favor of consolidation while having another agency fight consolidation at the same time. We really should take our thumb off the scale. 
So if the governments work in two different directions, sometimes opposing some of their own actions, is there any legislation that's coming down that could change this behavior? And if not, what could Congress do or should they do? There traditionally has been a bill to repeal the ban on physician-owned hospitals, and it has been introduced this session. So that is something that specifically could change that marketplace. As opposed to Stark Law overall, I think many members are curious and sort of relearning Stark Law in a new light. Because Stark Law, when it was introduced in the 1980s, had good reasons for why it was introduced. Those reasons have changed, and the market structure has changed, and the law now serves a different purpose. I'd like to remind the listeners that Episode 7 is on lifting the restrictions on physician-owned hospitals, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. All right, Brian, let's finish up on the private practice trends. So you've done work on these things and you're a deep insider to understanding the trends here. What does the data reveal about the influence of consolidation on private practice physicians? I think it reveals that consolidation is being used primarily as a tool for financial roll-up, less so for operational improvement. This can be done by either corporate actors, nonprofit or for-profit, or private equity firms, unfortunately, too. I guess my hope would be is is that they start to think about needed operational improvements and investments in IT and clinical workflows, because at the end of the day, that's what's going to give you a longer and more sustainable business, as opposed to pure financial engineering or changing the negotiating tactics with the health plan. And you and I are both in employed academic models. So after our colleagues in the private practice world get the impact of consolidation. How does that then translate into affecting us? Yeah, that's a more challenging question. And I'm biased because like you, I like my academic setting. I have a different balance of acuity, volume, and workload. And I have the space to deal with those high acuity patients. That could potentially change if health systems further consolidate and become more selective about which patients they then transfer or choose not to serve and have the academic medical center serve as the safety net hospital. Long way of saying, I think it could make life much harder for academic medical centers and also life much more stressful for those within them. And it's not that we don't work hard. It's just because a hospitalist I see a patient with, you know, 25, 30 medications on a regular basis. If I were practicing at a community hospital, that would be far less common. Brian, this has been one of my favorite interviews that I've done. I love this stuff and you are so deep in the weeds in this and so educated on this. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. One last question, my friend. This is a hardball. Where is consolidation? What's going to happen over the next five years? I think the next five years are going to bring two things. One, they're going to bring massively increased antitrust enforcement because we have Lena Khan at the FTC who is very aggressive and the hospital merger group is already very aggressive. I think they're about to get more so. We also have a new assistant attorney general for antitrust at the DOJ. So I think we'll see actually more health insurance merger enforcement. On top of that, There's a definite tide change I can feel in D.C., and this is not something that I can quantify or point to a study, but I think it has become acceptable to talk about hospital consolidation, much like drug pricing. Drug pricing has become an acceptable issue to discuss over the past couple of years. So I think we're going to see policymakers and policy experts increasingly look at the tools that government is applying to fight consolidation and find ways to take their government's thumb off the scale. 
do you feel that this is more of a Republican or a Democrat issue, or is this one of those rare but true bipartisan problems that they have to deal with together? I think that the issue of consolidation and the harms thereof are a bipartisan issue for certain. I know Democratic and Republican healthcare policy experts who are very concerned about consolidation and care delivery. It never really is partisan. There might be some disagreement about which specific levers to apply, but most of the people agree that the problem is there. It needs to be addressed. It's bad for patients and it's really hard for physicians. All right. This has been truly an absolute joy to talk with Dr. Brian Miller about healthcare consolidation and the problems within this. Dr. Miller, thank you very much, sir. Thank you for having me and thank you for focusing on this important issue. Y'all remember that this is actually part one of a three-part series on the effects of consolidation on our specialty. Once again, I'd like to thank my friend, Dr. Jim Fickey at Johns Hopkins uh, Department of Orthopedic Surgery for referring to us, uh, Dr. Brian Miller, who clearly is an outstanding expert on this field. I'd also like to really thank the Office of Government Relations for continuing to work hard on this and getting us these great speakers. We would encourage you to go, first of all, to the show notes where we will have specific links to other topics that can help you learn more about this. And also, don't forget our Advocacy Action Center where you can support the Office of Government Relations looking at specific issues affecting our profession. So I look forward to seeing you all next month when we continue to look at the effects of consolidation on our specialty. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission-Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy. Mm-hmm.